0: John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us Riley. He looked over at me and he said this, Greg, the people who are going to demand 90% of your time and attention pastoring in this church are the ones who will resent you the most. It was my first month as a pastor in this church And uh, my senior pastor had just told me what to expect. And uh, I was a brand new pastor. I was new at it. And despite his warning, I was inexplicably drawn to the hardest cases, the people with the biggest problems And, 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 and. you know, the deepest needs and the most powerful addictions and the relationship troubles that never went away and the deep seated anger and the resentment that would destroy everyone around them. Those were my people. And those were the folks who were always under my wing in those early years. Uh, I was new and I, I couldn't, you know, I figured if I couldn't help them, then who was going to help them? And, uh, and I was there for their suicide attempts. Uh, i remember I remember bolting out this door one afternoon uh, when I got the call the suicide text and uh, I had to hunt all over town finally found the guy in a bar having he had taken an entire bottle of pills and was washing them down with a bottle of some kind of Spanish red wine and uh, I was there the next morning at the hospital uh, when he overheard me telling. The nurses that he had told me that as soon as he got out, his intention was to fake it, to get out, and then kill himself. Uh, And from that day on, he resented me the most. Um, What was going on inside me? Was it just the overflow of God's love because God is drawn to that which is broken? Was it just a gospel thing going on inside my heart? Or was there something different, something maybe a little less healthy, a little more damaged? Was it just empathy and compassion that I had as a Christian, or was something else going on? As I matured, I came to realize there was something else going on. Why is it that I, as a young pastor, had to prove that I could help the people with the most problems? It was a savior complex inside me it was driving so much of my ministry. We're going to look at a passage today from the gospel according to St. John in which he describes an encounter with John the Baptist uh, and, and he lays bare for us some of these same heart issues that are present in the hearts of a lot of us. I'm going to read John chapter 1 verses 6 through 8 and then verses 19 to 34. It's a little longer passage than normal, but follow along with me. This is the word of our Christ. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. That's the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And then in verse 19, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess. He confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, well then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally they said, well who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am a voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know, and he is one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. It's an amazing account. What we see here is a warning from John. About the savior complex. Because you're not the Christ. And neither am I. See John knows what he's not. What's recorded here is an exchange between Jesus and men who are identified merely as Jews from Jerusalem. Um, The Jews is a term that's used in John's gospel typically to refer to Jewish leaders. And in this case, it says that uh, that they are Jewish leaders. And specifically, it says that they've come from Jerusalem. And and when we have a passage like this, um, I always want to acknowledge the ways passages like this one have been misused in Christian history, particularly in the history of anti-Semitism, where people have throughout Christian history pointed to passages like this and said, see, it says the Jews. The Jews are bad. Uh, And a lot of people have been murdered because of that. What's being spoken of here is not the Jews as an ethnic race. It says specifically the Jews from Jerusalem. These were all Jews. John was a Jew. John the Baptist was a Jew. John the the Apostle was a Jew. All of the disciples were Jewish at this point and would remain so for for several years. Um, But when he says that these were Jews from Jerusalem that came as as emissaries uh, to question John the Baptist, because he had all these followers in the desert, and he was baptizing them, and they wanted to know who he was, Uh, it's sort of like... Um, if you were an Augustinian monk in the 16th century working your way through the book of Romans and you discovered that it teaches that we're justified or reconciled to God by, by faith and you're sitting there in your, your study in, in, in Germany, uh, you know, getting really excited, telling people that they can be saved and, and reconciled to God simply by believing and trusting Jesus. And, and then there's a knock on the door and somebody else, Hey, Martin! There are some Catholics here to see you, Catholics from Rome. You know it's not talking about Catholics in general. It's taught that, the, that you are in trouble, you are in deep with the Pope and maybe the Inquisition because the folks in Rome have sent some people to question you. That's what's going on here. These are Jews from Jerusalem. They're specifically emissaries from the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council. And, and and they're wanting to know what's going on. Who is he? And we don't know exactly what question they first asked him because we start with an answer and then some follow-up questions. But based on his answer, it, it seems that they were asking him if he was in fact the Christ or the Messiah. That's, that's the, the figure that that... that that the people of Israel had been longing for for centuries, spoken of in the Hebrew scriptures in our Old Testament, as as, as one who would bring shalom, who would reconcile Israel to God, who would deliver them from all of their enemies and help them to again walk in the newness of life, The, the one who would bring the shalom of God, the peace of God, what what means more than just the absence of conflict, but the universal flourishing in which God and humanity and the environment were all webbed together in love and unity and grace and peace. Uh, The picture was that Israel would be so responsible in its richness it would flourish so fully that that the hills would be covered with so many grapevines that rivers of wine would be bursting forth and coming down the hillsides into the valley below it was a picture of God and man wed together and it was the Messiah the Christ who would come and they've asked him are you the Christ and his answer is clear I am not the Christ John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, with all of these followers is presented as being adamant on this point. In verse 20 it says, he did not fail to confess. And then it says, he confessed freely. And then it says, I am not the Christ. It means John is making a particularly big deal over the fact that he is not the Christ. He's saying, I can't bring you shalom. I can't fix you. I can't fix myself. I'm not the Savior. I have my limitations. I am not the Christ. He's being emphatic. Why is this relevant? It's relevant because so many of us are so tempted in so many contexts and in so many relationships to try to be the Christ, the hero, the one with the answers, the one who can listen to you, explain your problems, and then tell you what you need to do. Uh, I've watched it in a quarter of a century in this church. I've seen some relationships where the dynamic was something like this. For some of you, this may sound familiar. For others, maybe not. But imagine a relationship in which one partner has an overwhelming amount of personal need that they're not dealing with the way they need to deal with it. And the other partner is drawn to the fact that they get to be the hero rushing in on a white stallion to rescue them. It doesn't go well. The relationships, they were always bad. If it was a marriage, the marriage may not succeed. Why would it not succeed? Because you've got one partner over here, that's fundamentally not dealing with their issues, not dealing with their sin, not dealing with their past, not dealing with what's been done to them, not dealing with God, not dealing with what's going on inside of them, but just swirling about as a, 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 a charybdis of neediness uh, and not learning different ways to interpret their experience or different gospel tools with which to end up in a better place spiritually emotionally in every way meanwhile you have the other partner who is enabling that because they're trying to be the rescuer or the hero or the christ or the messiah and eventually the first partner is going to feel so controlled or despised because this person's always trying to fix them that they're going to pull away and eventually they're also going to figure out that this person is not really the christ and they can't really help them and they're going to resent them for that um because you're not a good rescuer does this sound familiar to anybody am i the only one who's seen this dynamic maybe it's just me maybe it's rare but my sense is it's actually fairly common and they don't go well you know made for tv drama uh would turn this into a cinderella story uh bad boys get redeemed by the pure love of a faithful woman in romance novels but the reality is when it does happen it's a lot rockier and a lot of tears are shed A savior complex can be an incredibly powerful drive within us. Who doesn't want to be the hero? Who doesn't want to save the day? Who doesn't want to be the strong one with answers who can make stuff happen? It appeals to our pride, and John isn't having any of it. I am not the Christ. I am not the rescuer. I cannot fix you. I cannot fix myself. Some of us might be more prone to a savior complex than others. Um, don't think for a minute that it's only expectations of others that lead you into trying to save the day. Uh, a lot of it is in our own hearts, in our, in our own souls. I remember, um, you may find this funny, but one of my fantasies as a teenager uh, uh, was, it's the only sports-related fantasy I've ever had. Uh, it was of me being the star quarterback on a uh, professional football team based in Washington, D.C., uh, that certain American Indian tribes don't like the name of. And, uh, uh, and we're, we're going up against, you know, it's, it's the Super Bowl. And I don't know if we're, I don't know, it's Oakland AFC, NFC, AFC. If they're AFC, they were playing Oakland. I can't remember the details. Uh, maybe it's not the Super Bowl, but, but it's five seconds left in the game. I am the quarterback. I am all the way back in my own end zone. The ball, ball snaps, and I throw a Hail Mary 100 yards all the way down, and it's caught in the other end zone right as the clock goes. We were down by five points, now we're up by one, and we've just won the Super Bowl, and they love me. They're throwing me up on their shoulders. They're, they're showering me with really good champagne, the the French stuff, not Asti Spamanti, but the stuff that has the little rm champagne code on the back of the bottle for recoltant manipulant meaning it was really good champagne made by french growers with their own grapes from their own land made on site they're showering me with good champagne i am the hero i am the savior i am the christ and have brought redemption to my particular athletic tribe maybe you've had something similar but i wanted to be the christ Think about John the Baptist. Think about the baptizer. He has thousands of followers who adore him. Someone in a position like that would be easily tempted to try to fix people, to be the savior, to think he's more than he is, to to try to be the rescuer himself instead of pointing to the real rescuer, Jesus. Um, And it's often it's driven by internal needs. One author says this. They say, Many individuals who enter into caring professions... Such as mental health care, health care, even those who have loved ones with addictions may have some of these personality characteristics. They're drawn to those who need saving for a variety of reasons. However, their efforts to help others may be of an extreme nature that both deplete them and possibly enable the other individual the problem is that we're trying to save someone does not allow the other individual to take responsibility for their own actions and to develop internal motivation. Therefore, whatever positive or negative changes you do get are typically only temporary. But it's our own internal drives that tempt us toward being, say, having a savior complex, uh, um, as well as our own surroundings. You know, pastors and others in Christian ministry are particularly prone to this condition, uh, because we represent Jesus. People look to us sometimes to do more than we can actually do or to be more than we actually can be. Sometimes people put expectations on you when you're in ministry. You're the person who can save my marriage. You're the person who can make my spouse love me. You're the person who can rescue my children. You're the one who can free me from my addiction. You're the one who can free me from all my psychological baggage that I've been carrying around my entire life. You're the one who can make my life worth living, and I am not. I'm just a guy pointing at Jesus, ready to love you and walk with you as you go to Jesus. These are expectations that you or I as human beings uh, could never carry because if we try to carry these kinds of expectations, one, we're going to fail miserably. And two, when we do, everybody's going to hate us for not doing our job of, of fixing them. And, it, you know, and that's hard when somebody lets you know what a failure you are as their savior. You know, when, when somebody says, you know, gosh, you know, you have been such a disappointment. You really did not live up to expectations. You've really let us down. We are so disappointed in you. You know, it's like a... You know, what we see here is a warning about thinking that we're the Christ, about a savior complex, because we're not. That's what John the Baptist is saying. But what does it cost to give up a savior complex? Look at what it costs John the Baptist. Uh, He had all of these followers... This entire time and just just a couple chapters later in chapter 3, there's a fascinating instance because once Jesus started baptizing in the river Jordan, John lost almost all of his followers because he was pointing them to Jesus. And so they started following Jesus. And of course, then what happens is John's followers come up to him in chapter 3 and they say, Rabbi, the man who you were with on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and now everybody's going to him. And John replies... A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. What is he saying? Uh, He's saying, hey, this is a wedding, and I'm not the groom. I'm the groomsman. I know my place. And then he says this. He, that is Jesus, must become greater, and I must become less. Um, you know, when we're in need, when when things hurt, when it's bad, we are prone to look for a human Messiah other than Jesus. Uh, we're prone to go look for it, uh, and and pastors can fall into the trap of of, of playing that role. Um, Jack Miller, who was a Presbyterian pastor in, I believe, Philadelphia, um, wrote Sonship, uh, World Harvest, I think now Surge. Uh, but uh, he had a policy where if you wanted to meet with him for pastoral care, he required you to show up 30 minutes in advance and to sit alone in the sanctuary with a Bible for 30 minutes before he would see you. And what he found is that more often than not, when it came time, somebody would knock on his door and say, hey, I've just spent half an hour with God, and I think I got what I need, thanks, and walk away. Um, It's interesting. Not always. Why is it hard, though, to give up being the Savior? It's hard because we spend our lives building an identity for ourselves through what we do. Uh, That's true whether it's through your work or whether it's through your career or your business or your family or your ministry. These are gifts from God. They're callings from God. But we often look to them to do more than they're capable of doing. We think, if only I could uh, reach the top of my career path, then... I will have been faithful, stewarding my career to God. No, then I will be somebody. See, asking the career to make you somebody, you can't do that. We say, oh, if only I can get published, then I'm going to be somebody. If only I can get into that program at Wash U. Uh, No, at Yale, I don't want to go to Wash U, but I have to go to Wash U. Then I'll be somebody. If only I can get that perfectly beautiful christmas photo card with me and the kids and the spouse and the dog and the cat in front of the fireplace with a perfect christmas tree and we're all wearing white and we're all smiling at the same time then i will be somebody Yeah, we try to purchase a significance for ourselves through what we do and then jesus comes along and he says actually i'm the christ not you not your career not your family not your photo not your none of that uh and what that requires of us is it means we have to decrease in terms of our own building of our own self and our own identity. Um, it means often losing something that we see as our ultimate significance. It's not that God necessarily takes everything away. It's not an erasure, but it's a humbling of ourselves and a humbling of how we view our career and our family and our ministry. Uh, and that's hard. It it means we risk becoming a zero. And for John the Baptist, what this required was not just losing the popularity of having all of these followers and their 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 undying adulation. Once he lost all his followers, those followers were the only thing keeping him alive because Herod wanted him dead. And as soon as the followers disappeared, they got his head on a literal platter. Becoming less for him meant dying. Um, It was fascinating watching our sister church New City Fellowship a number of years ago when the founding pastor of that church, Barry Henning, went first to his elders, then to his congregation, and then to his presbytery, and asked if he could resign as senior pastor and become an associate pastor and take his associate pastor, Tony Miles, and make him senior. And it was mind-blowing. I had never seen that happen. I had never seen somebody spend decades building a ministry and then ask to become demoted. I must become less. He must become more. I remember thanking Barry for just believing the gospel enough to do that. Uh, it's the hardest thing in the world for some of us. It means holding the things of this world very lightly, holding God's callings lightly, saying, Lord, whatever will increase the fame of Jesus, your son, that's what I want. I want him to get all the glory. I am willing to decrease so long as Jesus increases. It's the cost of of, being, of not being the Christ, of giving up our savior complex. You see, when you're, when you're trying to help other people in service to Christ, um, It means you have to set boundaries because you're not the Christ. Um, My phone, you will never reach me on a Friday because my phone is typically off. I'm off on Fridays. Sometimes I get people saying, Greg, what if I had an emergency on Friday? Well, are you in a community group? No, start there. Get in a community group uh, because those are the people who are going to care for you. Those are the people you're going to call on when you're in need and then you've got a ruling elder and then you've got pastors. But that's like third third tier. Um, But setting boundaries... Holding on to those boundaries. Oftentimes for some of you who are particularly people pleasers, it's going to mean when they ask you to do something saying, I don't know, let me think on that and get back to you. And then going and talking it over with your spouse, your friend, your elder. Somebody neutral and objective who can help you to ascertain whether or not this is something God actually wants you to do. Or are you just tempted to say yes because you want to be the Savior because it makes you feel important. Um, Sometimes it means backing off. Simply listening, asking yourself, "What is my motive here?" and 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 will my intervention prevent this person from dealing with the consequences of their own action? Uh, am I just doing this to make make myself happier, keep them happy? Uh, is my action actually going to make the situation better, or is it just going to make everybody feel better? Uh, am I feeling an internal need or compulsion? That To do this and and what's the nature? What's the origin of that compulsion? Am I trusting Jesus to be the one who makes me significant? Or am I tempted to say yes to this because I feel like I have to succeed in this relationship so that I can feel helpful or important or significant? Am I trusting Jesus to be the only one who can bring about any positive change in this other person? Am I pointing them to Jesus or am I pointing them to Greg? And am I okay becoming less so that Jesus can become more. You know, when I look at myself as a young pastor, um, a lot of what I was doing was really in service to myself because I needed to be successful as a pastor. And uh, though everybody seemed to love it at first, um, ultimately the very people I was helping did very often end up resenting me uh, because I was trying to fix them. And eventually they just felt controlled and walked away. So, what do we see here? How is it possible to break free of this? Friends, it's possible because there is a better Savior. This is the one John is pointing us to. In verse 7 and 8, says, John came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all people might believe. He himself was not the light. He came as a witness to the light. Notice the language here. This is language from the courtroom of being a witness and testifying. It, it's pointing us to a better savior he says in verse 26 verse 27 i baptize with water but among you stands one you do not know and he is the one who comes after me the thongs of whose sandals i'm not worthy to untie you know he would add his own testimony uh, later on in first john when he says these are the things my eyes saw I saw Jesus being baptized. I saw the Holy Spirit fall on him. I knew that this was the one, and I spoke and I said, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, I have seen and I testify that this Jesus is the Son of God. The entire structure of this book is actually trying to make the point that in all of this Jesus is the Lamb of God not in the sense that, that John probably understood there was a tradition or rabbinic tradition of, of the warrior Lamb who would come as a great warrior to do battle against the wicked, to battle the enemies of God's people, to beat them down and drive them away and John is probably looking at Jesus thinking oh, I got this, he's the Lamb of God who's the warrior Lamb who's going to go to war against the enemies of God's people. He's going to make, he's going to save the world from sin by getting rid of the sinners. And yet the structure of the book is twisting and reversing that in many ways. And, and it, it specifies here that, that, that he was in Bethany. And yet it's not the Bethany that's, you know, uh, further south on the other side. Uh, it's It's the It's the Bethany that's east. The the, the town itself was called Batanea. And there are a number of ways you could transliterate that Aramaic place name into Greek. And and the evangelist chose to transliterate it, the Semitic name Batanea, into the Greek form of Bethany. And uh, and it's there at Bethany on the east side of the Jordan, right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that John the Baptist says Jesus is the Lamb of God and he's going to take away the sins of the world. What's interesting is at the very end of Jesus' ministry, 10 chapters later, uh, in chapter 10, Jesus goes back and says, he, back in the same Bethany, he says that this is where John the Baptist spoke of me as the Lamb of God. In the very next chapter, he's across the river in another town called Bethany raising Lazarus from the dead as his last great sign, his last great miracle before going to the cross. And, and it's as if to say there is and an what scholars would call an inclusio, uh, if you could think of it as brackets. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's in Bethany. John the Baptist is saying he's the Lamb of God and he's going to take away the, ends of the, the sins of the world. And at the very end, end before going to the cross Jesus is is in Bethany again commenting on how John the Baptist said he was the son of God and was going to take away the sins of the world and then he goes to a different Bethany and and in the very next chapter raises Lazarus from the dead his greatest miracle to say and I will defeat death itself and then he goes to Jerusalem and goes to the cross to accomplish all of that for us not as a warrior lamb who saves us from our sin by driving out the sinners but rather as a lamb of god a sacrificial lamb who saves us from sin by taking our sin upon himself and carrying it all the way to the cross taking it and drinking that cup of god's wrath which was poured out full strength in the wine of his fury and drinking the wrath of god all the way down to the dregs thereby bringing death To death itself. Atoning for our sins on the cross. Forgiving all of your sins. And then triumphing over death. That you might live forever. It is a promise of God. The promise of Jesus Christ. To whom the witness is here saying. I saw these things. I know these things to be true. Jesus is the son of God. He is the lamb of God. And he takes away the sins of the world. So that you friends. Bear your sins. No more. That's the God that we serve. We've got a picture. Can I get that picture? This guy with the glasses Uh, is Father Maximilian Kolbe. in February of 1941, Father Kolbe was arrested by the Gestapo and sent to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. He was a Polish monk. He had founded a Franciscan order near Warsaw, And eventually, he was assigned to Barracks 14, where he continued to minister to his fellow prisoners. He would nod his understanding as men poured out their hearts. He would raise his emaciated arm and make the sign of the cross in the the stinking air of the packed barracks. He wrote this, he said, Christ's cross has triumphed over its enemies in every age, and I believe... In the end, even in these darkest days in Poland, the cross will triumph over the swastika. And I pray I can be faithful toward that end. One night in barracks 14, a young man escaped. The next morning, there was tension in the ranks as phantom thin prisoners lined up for roll call in the square. And afterwards, Commandant Fritz ordered the dismissal of everybody except the men from barracks 14, who were forced to stand still as punishment in the hot sun all day long. By evening, the commandant would make a lesson out of the fate of these men. The fugitive has not been found. And therefore, ten of you will die in his place in the starvation bunker. The starvation bunker. Anything was better. Death on the gallows, or maybe the gas chamber... This particular method, though, forced one to go without food and without water, locked in a room until you died. Ten people were randomly chosen, and the cry rang out from one of those men who was chosen for the starvation bunker. He cried, my poor children, what about my wife? What will they do? There was commotion in the ranks. A prisoner from the back, rear guard, broke ranks, And stood forward and volunteered, it was Father Kolbe. Frail, the priest spoke softly and calmly, and he said to the commandant, I would like to die in the place of this one man who you've condemned. The commandant ordered it done, and the ten were marched into barracks 11, where they would spend their last days. As the hours and days passed, the camp became aware of something extraordinary happening within the starvation bunker. Past prisoners had spent their dying days howling or attacking one another in a frenzy, cravings of of despair. But, But now, those outside heard from within the starvation bunker the soft sound of singing. For this time, the prisoners had a shepherd, gently leading them through the shadows of the valley of the shadow of death pointing them to a greater shepherd, to the real Christ, to Jesus, who, who decreased so that we might increase. Franziszek, Gijanicek, was the prisoner whose life was spared. He survived Auschwitz for four more years, and then for the next 53 years of his life, until he died at the age of 95, he joyously told everyone about the man who had died in his place. Friends, That is what Jesus did for you. Jesus took your spot in the starvation bunker. He took my spot in the starvation bunker. For the joy set before him, he did it willingly, willingly absorbing the judgment of God for my sins and yours, willingly absorbing all of that into himself, allowing it to crush him so that it would not crush you, so that you might go free and that the rest of your life, you might tell the story of the one who came from God, who took your place in the starvation bunker, who absorbed it all for you and how you therefore are alive. that's what Jesus did for you. Praise the name of your Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are the one who sent Jesus into the world in order to rescue us, in order to save us, in order to take the burden off of our shoulders and to carry that burden for us. We give you thanks and we consecrate to you now the elements on this table, Lord, that you would preach good news to us that we might go and do likewise for others. We do all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.